Hey, I'm Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. Today I happen to be sitting on the second longest single span suspension bridge in the United States. This is the new bridge right in front of Hoover Dam. I'm looking at this amazing dam and how huge it is and that giant lake behind it. And I realize that, you know, if that dam wasn't there, uh, neither would the lake be. But today's topic, I want to discuss something really interesting. This is um, one of the most fundamental aspects of evolutionary theory, and that is the idea of natural selection. We're going to go all the way back to the work of R.A. Fisher. He's probably the, I don't know, one of the greatest mathematicians in the 20th century. Fisher basically invented modern statistics. If you've ever had a statistics class, if you've ever argued with someone online or with the efficacy of COVID shots and if they cause heart attacks and things like that, well, this is all wrapped up in statistics, which sadly many people don't have a very good grasp of. But that's Fisher's work. But he's living in the early 1900s, early 20th century. And something is really interesting happening in the world of science, and that is Mendelism seems to be winning and Darwinism seems to be losing. And well, he's not going to put up with this, so he comes up with one of the most fundamental aspects, what we call Neo-Darwinism. Not old Darwinism, but Neo-Darwinism. This is when they were able to take Mendel's work in genetics and bring it into Darwin's work, which is always vague and never computational because, you know, Darwin wasn't an experimentist and uh, he never ran an experiment. In fact, he was a theoretical person, but more of a philosopher than anything. He really wasn't a scientist. So in the early 1900s, people were struggling. What do we do with Darwin? We all, everyone believed in Darwin, they said, but they didn't know how to make it scientific. So Fisher takes his acumen, he turns it onto this idea and he writes something called the Genetical Theory of Evolution in 1930. It's one of the most important works in all of evolutionary theory, the genetical theory of evolution. Well, okay, that means that there's a theory now, and it's genetic. Ah, this is um, Mendel's work being brought into the Darwinian fold. And he comes up with something he calls a fundamental theorem of natural selection. Now, theorem, you remember in math classes, and you learned about theorems and how to prove things, and I have worked all these, if this, then that, and remember how we struggle through all that in math? Well, a theorem should be something that's demonstrably true. And fundamental means this is the bones, the basic nature of everything. And he took this and he extrapolated it. He said, this is a general law. He compared it to the first law of thermodynamics. He said, it is not so little instructive that so similar a law should hold supreme position among the biological sciences. Wow, that is amazing. He's saying that this law of natural selection is on par with the second law of thermodynamics, which is the fundamental most fundamentally most important law in all of science. Yeah, you know, when I'm reading these early 20th century scientists, you know what strikes me? Arrogance, overweening pride, and hubris, saying things that, uh, I'm sorry, you can't say what you just said, but they did anyway. And because of their confidence and the way they presented it, so many people were saying, oh, well, evolution is science. If there's a law of evolution, that must be scientific. And they just, fell over into the evolutionary camp. And yet, um, after he publishes, mathematicians for 90 years struggled to redo his work. They couldn't figure it out. They, they're looking at what he did, and it's very mathematical, and da 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 and it didn't work, and it didn't work, and it didn't work. In 1972, a guy named Price, he's analyzing this fundamental theorem of natural selection. He says, the mystery and the controversy result from incomprehensibility rather than error. So this remained 
a major mathematical difficulty for a long time until two creationists, two friends of mine, Bassiner and Sanford, in 2017, they analyzed Fisher's paper and they said, oh, we see what he did. And they came out with what's called the fundamental theorem of natural selection with mutations. Because you see, Fisher's theorem had no mutations. He had standing variation in the population already, which he assumed came from mutation, but why couldn't have gone from, come from God creating some variation? Okay, put that aside. But he, you know, because in evolution, all genetic diversity comes from mutation. Therefore, if there's standing variation, then that is mutation. And now you can apply natural selection. And Bassner and Sanford said, yeah, Fisher was correct. If you have a population with some amount of variation, there will be selection over time toward the fastest reproducing individuals. If you define selection as um, focusing on individuals who reproduce more than others, this will happen. And there's something else they point out, and this is fascinating. Consider that there's some variation in some population. And over time, natural selection is winnowing this population, getting rid of some variants and amplifying others as well. That means you're losing variation. And Fisher and Bassner and Sanford uh, duplicated these results. He said that the amount of change, the quickness of the change, depends upon the amount of variation. So the speed of change is proportional to the amount of variance. Now, population geneticists use the term variance. We might say variability. We might say heterogeneity. Uh, we might say um, genetic diversity. But say variance. It's the variability within some trait. In this case, most of the time we're talking about a reproductive uh, speed, because that is the basic definition of Darwinian evolution. He or she who reproduces fastest wins. That also gets rid of a lot of the arguments within creationism about is natural selection true or not. If you define it in the terms of reproduction, everything works out just fine. All right, so here we have a population. We have some variability. We have natural selection acting upon it, getting rid of some variability. If the speed of change is proportional to the variance and that variance goes down, the speed of change also goes down to the point where you can get absolute genetic pigeonholing where species has lost all the diversity in that trait and can no longer change. Oh, that's not what Fisher said. What Fisher said was that the change goes on forever. That once you get to a point B, then more change can bring you to point C and more change can bring you to point D. But his mutation spectrum was balanced. It was a, a Gaussian distribution. It was a bell curve. There was an equal number of good mutations and an equal number of bad mutations. And if you have that, yeah, you can advance your species. You can get it to natural selection to advance it in some direction until you run out of variation. So he has this theorem, and then there's a corollary. This is where the evolution part comes in. He said, it happens in all species, at all times, and fitness is always increasing. So the corollary is that natural selection never stops. That new mutations happen, and back then he had no idea what the mutation spectrum was. He had no idea that modern geneticists say, yeah, most mutations are negative. But he had an equal number of positive and negative. And, and what Bassner and Sanford did in their math and in their computer models, they said, yeah, this does work. You can get a species always changing and always increasing in fitness over time if you have a large proportion of positive mutations but that's not reality. In fact, Kylie and Lynch wrote in 2003, the vast majority of mutations are deleterious. This is one of the most well-established principles in all of evolutionary genetics. So Fisher's assumptions don't match reality. That is the most important assumption in all of neo-Darwinism.
He also assumed that all mutations are dominant, that there's no recessive mutations. So between his arbitrary and ridiculous uh, assumption that half the mutations are good and there are no recessive mutations, that his mathematics does work out. So his theorem is true, but the corollary is false. If you add very slightly deleterious mutations, which is what population geneticists since the 19, late 1960s have been talking about, most mutations are bad, but not all of them are tragically bad. They're just a little bad, most of them. There are some really bad ones, and they can be naturally selected away pretty easily. Then what we're left with is mutations that don't really have a profound effect on fitness, therefore natural selection can't touch them. And those are the bane of Darwinism. The other crazy thing is that most populations today are stable, some are threatened, and many have gone extinct, but clearly fitness doesn't increase over time. Reproductive output per female does not increase over time in almost all species. So what was Fisher even talking about? That's not the way the world works. We should have seen it a long time ago. And for those decades of mathematicians trying to analyze his work, they couldn't figure it out well, because no one ever actually stopped to think, was he correct in his starting assumptions? That's where he failed. And if he fails in his starting assumptions, well, what do we do with the rest of neo-Darwinism? So the question boils down to, can mutations restore variation without reducing fitness? That is the primary evolutionary question. In fact, Bassner and Sanford said that was Fisher's primary mistake. He made an assumption without knowing the mutation spectrum. And now we know that most mutations are bad. Uh, what happens at neo-Darwinism? Consider that Fisher's work is like this dam behind me. And neo-Darwinism is like the lake behind the dam. What happens if you remove the dam? There's no more lake. Evolutionists know this, which is why they don't talk about it. And by the way, this paper by Bassinger Sanford is not some little paper. All the people in the field have downloaded and read this paper. They know the problem. Thank you for watching. I really appreciate the time you just spent with me. Thank you to my supporters on buymeacoffee.com, my long-term supporters on Patreon. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to help out this channel, there'll be some links in the show notes, but the biggest thing you can do for biblical genetics is just like and share and talk it up with your friends and tell people that natural selection doesn't work. You can point them to this video right here, but I got to get out of here because it is early summer. It's like July 1st. The sun is at noon. I am a, a light-skinned person. I am roasting. This is a silly place for a person like me to be, but I couldn't help it. I had to come here to give you this uh, illustration of the dam and the lake and Fisher's work and how it doesn't work. Therefore, the dam of neo-Darwinism is gone. The lake of neo-Darwinism must drain.